Let us prepare ourselves for a miracle as you turn to the book of James chapter 1. The book of James chapter 1. And we are going to read the entire chapter. And then we'll pray. James chapter 1. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is double-minded, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he was lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change." Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls." But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing." If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, the perfect law of liberty. And it is indeed like a mirror. And I pray that as we look into this mirror, that you would reveal our true selves. That we would understand that as we go through trials of all sorts and kind, that we need not fear. 
but rather trust that through these sufferings, through these testings, that we will be purified, that the result will be steadfastness because of the implanted word, the gospel of Jesus Christ in our own hearts. We thank you for that confidence and I pray that we would leave here as changed men and women, not being hearers only, but doers of the word. We pray that your spirit would move and it's in Jesus' name that we ask, amen, amen. I think most of us, even in this culture, we, we all claim something about ourselves, what we're like, uh, what we believe in. But our claim really shows itself to be true in testing. It's been said that you don't know what's really in a sponge until it's actually squeezed or, or, or like a, a cup that, that's not clear and you can't see what's in it. You don't know what's in it until it's bumped. And that's how it is in life. We, we claim a lot of things about ourselves. I believe this, I'm like that, or I trust in this. But the rubber meets the road when testing and trials come. The most profound ways that we show our true colors, as it were, is in times of testing. All the things that you've learned the decisions that you've made, they all shape your character. Your character is not just found in the, the few great things you've done in your life, but the 1,001 decisions you make today in your life. And when that time of great testing comes, it will show who we truly are. Some people call the time of testing a refining fire. And we know, we're familiar with that phrase because a goldsmith or a, a silversmith, that they, they refine so that the impurities and the dross are removed and only the, the gold is left. We call it trial by fire. Most of you, when you go through trials, I, I know for my, myself, when you go through trials, you say, I'm going through the fire. And in that process, the truth about who we really are is actually put on display. And that's what James is really addressing in this whole book. It's really about testing, specifically in this chapter. It's about testing. And so James wants to tell us this morning the truth about testing. And James, if you've ever read James before, you know that if there's one thing that James does is he tells you the truth. He does not joke around. It, it's like, well, in a way, it's like Pastor G. <laughs> See, Pastor G is one of those men in my life who in the same 60-second window will hug me and smack me in the face. He'll be like, what's up, Jack? Come on, he'll hug me like, what are you doing? I'm like, ah, like hug, slap. Oh, that's what James is doing here. James is that guy in your life saying, I love you. Stop it. You're being an idiot. Jesus loves you. Stop being an idiot. It's just a hug and the slap over and over again. In fact, in, in the over 100 verses in this whole book, 58 of them are imperatives. They are commands. Do this. Stop doing that. So it's very different than other New Testament letters. I mean, right now in Reality LA, I'm teaching through Romans, which is like this sweeping, grand theological narrative. So if Romans is like a, no a novel, James is more like a note from your mom. It's like, take out the trash. Stop, stop doing this. What are you doing? I'll be home at five, you know? 
So James certainly tells us the truth. And in this context, he is telling us the truth that we need to know about testing. First of all, testing reveals your truest resource. When you go through testing of various sorts and kinds, it reveals your truest resource in life. And what I mean by resources is your go-to, right? Even when you have a resource guide, you go to it because it went in times of need. So in times of testing, it reveals what we actually trust in, your go-to, if you will. We may claim a lot of things, but what do we actually cling to when things are stripped away from our lives? What is our functional resource in life? And James tells us that if our resource is found in God, of course, he's writing to Christians. He says, brothers, then we have, firstly, a redemptive perspective on trials and suffering. Notice what he says there in verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Notice trials will come. It's not if they come, it's when they come. And these are trials of various kinds. It's not just one trial or another. It's all kinds. External trials, inward trials, just any kind of trial. When they come, if your resource is found in God, you will have a redemptive perspective. And here's why it's significant to know this, because usually when trials come, here's our perspective. We usually think one of two things, either A, God doesn't exist, or B, if he does, he hates me. That's how most people view eternity or view God when trials come. A, God doesn't exist. They think all this horrible stuff, if God really existed, this horrible stuff wouldn't be happening right now. And we don't have the time to expound upon this, but if you go through suffering and you say, you know what, I can't, even, I can't even believe that God exists because of this suffering, your problem of suffering actually becomes harder. Because if there's no God, there's no meaning in life, and you shouldn't even be complaining about trials in your life. It's just part of the natural order. Someone dies, natural selection. Or if God does exist, as C.S. Lewis once said, I didn't believe in, in God and I was mad at him for not existing. <laughs> Usually, no, I believe in God, but he must hate me. Why do these things? He must hate me. But James offers a, a third perspective, if you will. The whole Bible really offers another way of understanding. Make no mistake about it. Trials will come, and when they come, they will suck. James is not a masochist, okay? Just, just so you know that. He's not like, yay, trials, I love them. Okay, he's not weird like that. But he says you can have joy in the midst of trials. See, we live in this fallen world, not part of God's original design that we suffer. And so we will inevitably experience this fallen world both internally and externally at every count. But he says that these trials will not destroy us. If your resource is in God, they will only strengthen us. They will only strengthen us because we remember that our redemption came through suffering. Suffering and glory are actually inseparable. The Messiah first had to suffer and then enter into his glory. That's why the disciples were so confused after the cross. 
Remember on the road to Emmaus, Luke chapter 24, they were confused. And then Jesus, you know, was hidden to them because he had his ancient hoodie over his head and they didn't recognize him. And they're like, who is this guy? And Jesus is like, what are you talking about? And they're like, well, this man, he was great in word and deed and a prophet, but he was crucified. And Jesus said, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe, ought not the Christ to have suffered, then enter into his glory. The model of the Christian life, suffering and glory. There's a famous parallel passage that the apostle Peter writes about concerning suffering. He says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 13, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though some strange thing were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. They will produce a steadfastness. In the Greek, it's this hyperstanding that you're able to, to bear up under it. You're able to bear the challenge. And there's another resource that's found in this text. If God is our resource, then we are given wisdom through the privilege of prayer. We're given wisdom. Notice in the midst of trials what verse 5 provides for us. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. If God is your resource, not only do we have this whole new perspective, but we have prayer. We can actually come to God and we can ask him for wisdom in the midst of suffering. Now, this is a famous verse, and it's often quoted out of context. Most people think that any decision in life I need to make, that God will give me wisdom for that. And, and while that may be true in one way or another, James is specifically referring to wisdom in trials. Wisdom in trials. We're talking about decisions that you have to make that demonstrate your character, your moral character. For, for example, let me just give you an illustration. This verse does not promise that in a moment of decisiveness over choosing, you know, whatever, like chicken or steak, you know, God, I don't know, but your word says if I just ask for wisdom, you'll, you'll show me. And God's like, steak, you know, <laughs> okay. Or, you know, which car should I buy, the Toyota or the Lexus? And God's like, the Lexus, the drivetrain policy is far greater. You're like, oh, now, I'm not saying that God does not give us wisdom in those times, but James is talking about wisdom in the midst of trials. A situation where you are tested and you have to make a moral decision, not Toyota, Lexus, or chicken or steak, but right and wrong. Much like the choice that Job was presented when he suffered. What were Job's two options? Trust God even though he didn't understand or the counsel of his wonderful wife who said, curse God and die. Wisdom, what should I do in a situation that demonstrates moral character in line with the gospel, God will always give you wisdom. So you're suffering, you've lost your money and the question comes down to, should I steal this or should I trust God? God will absolutely give you wisdom in your time of need. Trust me. My, my, my approval, I feel like nobody's approving me. Maybe I should sleep with so-and-so who's not my wife or my husband. In that moment of testing, God will give you wisdom. The answer is no. I'm giving it to you right now, <laughs> just so you know. <laughs> See, God's concerned here in the midst of trials with our character 
and our character is put on display through testing. God will give you wisdom to make the decision that is in line with his character. And we're to ask in faith. Why faith? Because faith is the exact opposite of trusting in yourself. It's trusting in God. And the result that James has in mind here is steadfastness, bearing up with strength, with a view to maturity. He tells us that you'll be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. So through this testing process, he removes the dross, the the weaknesses and imperfections of our character. And as he endures, he equips us with what we need to conquer. That is how we have this new perspective and this glorious privilege of prayer through trials. However, if your truest resource lies in the world, If your resource lies in anything other than God, a time of testing will leave you unstable. You will be like a man or woman tossed back and forth in the storms of life. Notice what he says in verse 6. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. If your resource is in something other than God, not your claimed resource, I think everyone in this room would say, God is my resource. But when the test comes and things are stripped away from you, what is your functional resource? What is your go-to? If it's not in God, if it's something in this world, it will be revealed and you will be left unstable because nothing can hold you like God. There's nothing in this world that you could say that James says about God that there is no variation or shadow of turning. There's no true anchor besides him. He says, as a result, you'll be this double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, this is not speaking so much of logic when it's speaking of doubt, but of loyalty. It doesn't mean that you won't have thoughts that come in your mind that say, oh, I wonder about this. It has to do with loyalty. Because let me tell you, doubts will come in your mind. To be strong in faith does not mean that you'll never have a doubt coming into your mind, but the point is that you will not build on your doubts. You will not build on them. In other words, they are incidental, not fundamental to your life. In spite of doubt, you choose God. In spite of doubt, you choose to build your house upon the rock and not upon the sand. And in both cases, the storm will come, as Jesus said. This double-minded man in the Greek, it literally speaks of a two-souled man, a divided person, not just in logic, but in loyalty. He's a walking civil war, or she's a walking civil war. Imagine your life having an anchor, and then you're given options, and you say, oh, I just can't commit to one or the other. There's God, or there's money. There's God, or there's the approval of this person. There's God, and there's my health. There's God, and this. And you have your anchor, and the double-minded man is the one who just remains in indecision and does not put his anchor in one or the other. When the storms come, you will be shipwrecked. You will be tossed back and forth, the one who remains in indecision. You won't ask in faith. Why? Because your loyalty is divided. Your loyalty is divided. Conflicting desires will always exist, but the point is, what are you anchoring yourself in? See, testing, trials, suffering, they reveal your resource, at least your your functional resource. So think about it. 
I have to think about this often. See, trials consist in usually something being taken away. You know, your reputation has been destroyed. Your, your health has declined. You lost all your money. Or, or, or you, you've lost something. Status, health, wealth, whatever it might be. And when this happens, it often exposes what is competing for your trust. You're not just wounded. You're destroyed. You're in despair. And in those times of testing, we're shown where our resources truly lie. Was it in our, in our ability? Was it in our wisdom? Did we place something else in the place of God functionally? Strength, approval, reputation, stuff, possessions, riches. See, you know you trust in those things when they're taken away from you. You know where your own heart's at when things are taken away. And James uses an example in verses 9 through 11 of the poor man and the rich man. And it seems that in this context, James is demonstrating that two of the greatest trials that will befall Christians throughout the ages is the challenge of poverty and wealth. Because when you're in poverty, the challenge is to think that your trust can only be if you get to this point and gain riches or gain worldly wealth. And if you're rich, often people put their trust in maintaining their riches. So there is a huge pressure upon us in the world to focus on one thing or the other, but our trust is to be in Christ, in the eternal, not the temporal. And what's wonderful about the gospel is it enables us to boast in Christ because both the poor and the rich have Christ. Their possessions, whether few or many, don't change anything about their communal wealth in God. They both share in Christ together. That's why Paul said in Philippians 4, that famous passage, verses 11 through 12, he said, I've learned to be content. I have a lot, praise God. I've had nothing, praise God. Notice he doesn't deify or demonize riches or poverty. He's not preaching a poverty gospel or a wealth gospel. He's like, oh, I was rich. Oh, then I was taken away. I was taken away. Then I was rich. What? Jesus. <laughs> I mean, it's, a simple, it's almost as if he's indifferent because his wealth is in Christ. And notice that term, let the lowly brother boast, which implies that the, the rich man may boast in his riches. See, the, boasting is bragging. What you brag about when trials come, what is that thing? You say, it's all right. I have fill in the blank. What do you say? When things are stripped away, when, when you, when you, when, let's say you lose money, and let's say you lose health, you say, it's okay because this person loves me. What, do you, what is your boast? You, a boast, um, if I can just kind of geek out for a minute, you know, the, the term boasting was this old term used in battle. You know, they would talk trash to each other, you know, Braveheart, whatever, you know, the Scots versus the Brit. And the, they'll boast. They'll be like, oh, well, we're Scottish and you're English and whatever. People brag that they boast before they go out to battle, what their trust is. Uh, we see that in the Old Testament. Remember David, when he goes to fight Goliath, what is he doing? He's talking trash. He's like, you uncertain circumcised Philistine. That's trash talking. He's like, you dare defy the Lord God. Oh, you know, and the stone sinks into his forehead. I love that language. Just sinks in. He's boasting as something. This is what it's all about. So what is your boasting? Maybe it's not the love of another person. Maybe it is your wealth. So that when a, a husband, a wife leaves you, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, you're like, that's okay. I've got my money. Or maybe you lose your, your, the, that kind of love and you lose your money, but you say, that's okay. I've got my reputation. But what if you lose it all? Let not the wise man boast in his riches. 
Let him boast in this, that he knows me. See, testing reveals your truest resource. Secondly, testing reveals your truest desires or your truest love. Notice what he says in verses 12 through 15 about temptation in the midst of trial. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, but he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, then desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin. Notice the contrast. Again, if your desire or love for the Lord, notice he says those who love the Lord in that first verse, it will bring forth renewal and reward. Renewal, you will be blessed. Reward, you will receive the crown of life. If your truest desire and love is for the Lord, you will be renewed daily in your mind and your reward will be with God. But if your desire goes elsewhere, if you're lured and enticed away from something other than God, it will bring forth sin. It will bring forth sin. I, I wonder if you've ever thought about it. Whenever you sin, it demonstrates in that moment what you valued more. A, a man that, that has an affair, in that moment of temptation, whether or not he feels horrible about it later, in that moment of temptation, if he chose to have the affair, he was valuing the other woman above his wife. That object of desire seemed of greater value in that moment. That's why he chose it. Nobody twisted his arm. It seemed of greater value in that moment. See, when we sin, we show what's of a greater value. Our desire is exposed. And then our tendency is to blame shift, just like it happened back in the book of Genesis. Remember when God calls out Adam and Eve, and Adam's like, it was the woman you gave me. Source of all of our problems. See, why, why is that? Whenever anything bad happens, right? When we have to fess up to someone, like, yeah, I did wrong. But if it had it not been for, yeah, I got in the accident. But you know, anti-lock brakes don't always work. Like, what is that? I mean, we just, we're good at it. Children are good at it. My kids are professional manipulators. And I'm not saying that I'm totally innocent, but I'm not that good. They're like, they've exceeded the master, if you will. I mean, they just know how to blame shift. They know how to work the system. It's part of our sin nature. And in temptation, our tendency is to blame God when we give in. Well, God allowed the trial, and God tempted me. But James says, be careful. Don't be deceived. God is not the author of temptation. He allows the testing, but he is not the author of the desire to do evil in the testing. You, we have to get that straight in our minds. He allowed and ordains the end of the testing, which is what? That you'd be steadfast. He is not the author of your desire to do evil within temptation. The temptation towards evil lies within us. It's revealed in those times of great pressure. Now, generally speaking, desire itself is not always bad. And this word in the Greek is epiphemeo. It's, it's an over-desire. Sometimes it's translated evil desire, but that's a little bit misleading. It's over-desire. In other words, it's not just wanting a bad thing. It's wanting a good thing too much. It's putting too much weight on that good thing. It's an over-desire. And here's when it becomes evil, when that desire substitutes its own personal and private goal in the place of God's will and design. You say, I, I love the affection of this person. I love my, my, my job. It's, 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 my, it's my everything. 
It's when it substitutes God for this other thing. And when we place people and wealth and status in the place that it ought not be, it becomes sin, but it starts with a desire and affection. So the problem is within. See, the tendency for us is not only to blame God, but to blame everything else. What's this world? We're so materialistic. That's why I wanted that. Or we're so sexed up as a culture. That's why I wanted that. But see, the problem is, is if you read the Bible, the the problem of sin goes right down to the very core being of who you are. Paul calls it in Romans, indwelling sin. It's a part of you. Which thirdly, shows us our truest need. Testing reveals our truest, greatest, and deepest need. Look at the latter part of verse 15. When desire is conceived, notice that language, conceived, it's language of spiritual adultery. Do you notice that? When it's conceived, the grandchild of desire in a fallen world is death. When it's conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. If left to our sin, it brings forth death. So in a way, James is is kind of checkmating us here, if if you will. Where are we to go? There's nowhere to go from here. If if the problem is death, and going backwards, the problem is sin, but sin stemmed out of my over-desire for for something, and it's not God's fault, it's mine, then what in the world am I supposed to do? I mean, think about it. You know, religious people, not talking about true religion as James talks about it here, but people that think that they can make themselves good. See, they don't get that the problem goes all the way down to the core of your being. And that's what James is demonstrating here. If the problem is that our heart naturally over-desires things, and that's the problem. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. I've come into the darkness, but you have not come unto me. Why? Because you love darkness. Because you esteemed something of greater value. So if it all is, starts within, with this over-desire, and then it brings forth sin, and sin leads to death, then what is the solution? Where do we go? Many people have been trying to answer this question throughout the ages. Some people say, well, just give in. Just forget trying to fight against any desire. Just give in. Is that not the prominent voice of our day? Just give in. Celebrate any desire within you. The famous, well-known author, Oscar Wilde, who wrote The Picture of Dorian Gray, once said, the only way to get rid of temptation is to give in to it. Resist it, and your soul grows sick with longing for the things it has forbidden to itself. But on the other extreme, you say, fight it. But you have no resource. From where do you draw that strength to fight sin that dwells within your own soul? You can cover it up but it's still there. See, here's what James is getting at. If you do not have something incorruptible, gold, at the core of your being, when that fire comes, that fire of testing, it will leave nothing. When you pass through the fire, there will be nothing left. If there's no gold within, if there's nothing incorruptible within, it will be an all-consuming fire. We are in such great need. As a result, we stand under God as judge and alienated from him as father. We're guilty and we're lost. And God's design in conviction is to expose our spiritual poverty so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in something, or I should say someone else. 
And what's his answer to fight against temptation? The solution is the gift of God. Look at verses 16 through 18. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits. So, so the good that we need in the midst of testing, it cannot be found below. It can't be found within. It must come from above. It must come down to us from the Father of lights, from whom every good and perfect gift comes, in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. So it is against this backdrop of death that the light of the beauty of God shines bright. Our situation is so grave, and it demonstrates to us the great lengths to which God went to save us. He saved us by giving us the ultimate gift. Jesus, the truly tested one, was tested beyond anything you and I could ever possibly imagine. Everything was stripped from him. All that we hold dear, marital status, uh, possessions, approval, friendships, wealth, everything was stripped away from him. And there he is on the cross going through utter, total testing no wife to be found. He's in the prime of his life, and yet he's being crucified. He had no money. He was homeless. His best friends bailed on him. All the people were mocking him, saying, you're not really the Messiah. If you were, get down from that cross. His own people were rejecting him. He was stripped naked on the cross. All that we esteem, all that we value in life, he did not have when he went to the cross. And he went through that fire of judgment, and he went through it alone. And he was shown to be perfect, for he stood fast. That's what steadfastness means in the midst of the trial. You're not the soldier that runs away and drops the sword. You take up another sword, and you drop your shield. That's steadfastness. At least that's an illustration that helps me in my mind. Just two swords. What, you're going to come and grab another one? That's what Jesus did at the cross. He was shown to be perfect. That's what Hebrews is all about, the perfection of Christ. Notice what the author of Hebrews says. It's a long passage, but just notice the magnificence of Jesus here. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that is his incarnation, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery, that is us. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people because he himself has suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are being tested. He stood fast in testing. Why? For the glory of God and for your soul. You deserve hell and judgment. I deserve hell and judgment. And Jesus took hell and judgment so that we would not have to. He stood fast that we might gain him. And through believing in him, notice the language that James uses, we're born again, right? That's the biblical language. He says in verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth. That is to be birthed by the word of truth, which is, of course, the gospel. 
And the way we strengthen ourselves is by looking to Christ, by looking to Jesus. James, notice James prefaced that whole se- uh, section by saying, don't be deceived. God is the true and greatest gift. God is truly beautiful. God is the greatest resource. Do not be deceived. James does not want us to be deceived. And you know what I love about James' remedy here is the best defense as a good offense. And he doesn't just talk about the naughtiness of sin alone. Of course, he does that. He says the end result is death. But he talks about the beauty and perfection of God. That is the greatest remedy against temptation to do evil in times of testing. See, if I just told you, hey, Christians, don't sin. Let's pray. Like, okay, I got, okay, I'm really going to try. Oh, I just said, oh, like I'm just appealing to your will. But if I present to you this day, the perfection and beauty of Jesus Christ, though, even though you never stood fast, he stood fast to the end for you. That beauty melts your heart. It goes beyond your will and gets to your heart and it just melts you. Oh, I love Jesus. He is the perfect gift. He is the light of the world come from the father of lights. And what does he do? He meets our truest need. Because our truest need is transformation at the deepest level. He meets our truest need. And when you realize how great your need is, see, this is why we must talk about the depravity of our condition is so that it's like a plot line. You just see how desperate we were. So Jesus shows up and all of a sudden you see him for as he truly is your truest need. And then working backwards, he becomes your greatest desire. Because when you see all of his beauty and splendor and everything he is for you, you desire him above everything else because you see his beauty surpasses anything that this world could offer. And then as a result, he proves to be your go-to, your greatest resource in time of need. When trials come, where do you go? Jesus, I've got nowhere else to go. He's the only thing I will ever need. Corey Ten Boom, the famous woman who hid Jews during the time of Nazi Holocaust who herself suffered said, you'll never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And brothers and sisters, you don't need to have everything in this world taken away from you to realize that Jesus is all you need. You just need to realize your spiritual poverty. And that happens as you read the word of God. You realize I'm nothing without Jesus. And we've been born again by trusting in this word of truth which speaks of not only scripture, but of Jesus himself. And this is only possible because of the one who was truly tested. And as a result, and this is where James just gets so practical, we now live in light of the gospel. We now live out the gospel. If you've been born again by the one who did not give into sin and temptation, and now he's given you the strength, you are to represent that in your daily life. You as a community, in Ventura or Carpinteria, Santa Barbara, Goleta, wherever you live, you're to live out the gospel in your community. You're to be a community of the word of truth. And that's what he's getting at at the end of this chapter. You're brought forth by the word of truth so that you can bring forth truth in your life. So that when the fire comes, the opportunities comes, you are tested. What is revealed but Christ in you, the hope of glory. Fruit comes out of you because you've been born again. Jesus is in you. You don't need to fear testing. And it's precisely because we have indeed, if you've believed on Christ, been born again and brought forth by the gospel that James gets so gnarly. The reason he's so straightforward is not because he doubts your ability. It's because he knows that Christ is in you, that you have the ultimate ability to do this. 
That's why he doesn't hesitate to be like, you're being an idiot. Stop. And he knows you can stop because you have the ultimate what? Resource. You look to the beauty of Christ. So the way that this word of truth flourishes is by obedience. James says over and over again, don't be deceived. Don't settle for counterfeit religion. If you've seen the glory of God, that will be demonstrated in your life. You won't be a religious jerk. That's my summary of the rest of the chapter. Someone who claims something and never does jack. You won't be that. If you've seen Jesus, that he gave everything for you, that by his poverty you were made rich, it makes you generous. See, I could say to you, just give away your money. Oh, you know, you'll be motivated for like a day. But if you see the beauty of Jesus and what he gave for you, you'll be motivated for life. You'll be generous. And that's what he's saying. The community is to evidence that. We are not to be. Don't settle for a counterfeit religion. Practice what you preach. If you have indeed been born again, the evidence should be seen in your action and in your attitudes. So several quick things. You'll be a community of concern, meaning that you'll be quick to hear and you'll be slow to speak. You'll be a community of concern because when you speak too fast, it demonstrates oftentimes a lack of concern for the other, does it not? When somebody comes to you and tells you your, your problems and you start talking in two seconds, do you care about them? Like, oh man, I just really got to, well, you know what you need to do. And they're like, you didn't even listen. <laughs> like, well, I don't need to listen because I know everything. Do you care about that person? No. See, you'll be a community of concern. You'll be caring about those people. And this will be evidenced in your life. You'll also be a community of righteousness. You won't be quick to anger. You won't be filled with filthiness and rampant wickedness. You'll be a community of righteousness that is slow to anger. And in place of wickedness and filthiness, you continue to receive the word of truth. You're changed by the gospel. It's continually brought on you, to bear on your heart by the spirit of God in a transformative way that people can actually see. Then you'll be a community of action. You won't just be hearers only. You'll actually be doers. And he uses this mirror analogy. He says, for, for the person that's truly been born again, you see the mirror, you see the imperfections, the trials themselves, the testings themselves reveal your impurities, and you don't walk away from there forgetting. You go, God, change me, and I'm going to make decisions in my life to then change. You don't just walk away and forget what you've seen. And what you see in the mirror as you read the word of God is you see what you are in Christ and you see what you are to become. This is both positive and negative. And this mirror will, will show you what's wrong with you and what should be done to put it right. But you're not devastated when you're called out by the word of God. Why? Because your resource is in Christ. You know, some of you, when somebody criticizes you, you're devastated. You can't even live. You can't even go out in public. Why is that? It's because you esteem the praises of man above the praises of God. That's the answer. You can try and think of all kinds of psychological reasons and whatnot, but the reason is you actually esteem the praises of others. You can't even handle criticism. But if your trust is truly in Jesus, knowing that he is transforming you, you can receive criticism and you're not freaking out and you're not making excuses and you read the word of God and you see your imperfections and you're like, yes, change me and make me more like Jesus. I love my wife, and she calls me out all the time on my imperfections, and over the years, you know, in the sweetest, loving, gentlest, most amazing way possible, like, honey, you know, just that kind, the very humble approach, and she exposes these things in my life. I'm like, yes, I want to be more like Christ. I'm not devastated that I've been criticized because my strength and approval is found in Jesus, not in myself. 
It's found in Jesus. We'll be a community of action. And lastly, you'll be a community of justice. Because love and justice was shown at the cross that you who are afflicted and miserable, Jesus came for you. You will be an advocate of those who are in need of justice. You'll visit the orphans and widows in their affliction. You'll not just visit them or give them a handout. You'll actually advocate for them because Jesus is your advocate. See, the gospel changes everything. It's all in response to the beauty of God's gift. So brothers and sisters, the trials will come. And this is not some kind of a jinx message. You know, whenever you talk about suffering, like, oh my gosh, my car is going to break down today. It's, that's superstition. That's not Christianity, just so you know. But the trials will come. But when they come, you do not need to fear the fire. The only fire that you need to fear is the fire of judgment. And some people don't fear it enough. That's the only fire that could possibly destroy you. But Jesus went through the fire of judgment for us. He took upon himself our disloyalty to him, our devotion to sin, and our failure to do right. And he passed through the fire. There wasn't just a refining fire. It was a fire of judgment. So that when we pass through the fire, it's not a fire of judgment. It's a fire of refining. It's a fire of refining. And so now we can have a redemptive view of suffering because Jesus Redemption for us came through suffering. And the suffering and trials will only push us toward the goal. Yes, it will reveal your, your faults and your blemishes. But when they are revealed, you do not despair. Your trust is in Christ, the hope of glory. So let me say this. These trials, these testings that come your way are in a sense, and everything that James says to you, the greatest compliment that God could ever serve to you. I'll close with this to describe it. Oswald Sanders said, severe testing is not the mark of divine disapproval, rather the reverse. Why? Only ore which bears precious metal is subject to processing and crushing. Only alloy in which there is valuable metal is placed within the refiner's fire. Since God has pledged himself never to subject his children to tests beyond their ability to bear, a severe test is in reality his vote of confidence. Heavenly Father, we thank you that that is true of any man or woman that has put their trust in Christ. That you have deposited in us the seed of the word, the gospel, the incorruptible gold of faith. Lord, I pray that you would encourage men and women in this room who are fearing trials that you would remind them right now the only thing they really need to fear is the wrath of God. And you already took care of that at the cross. So now they can stand steadfast, immovable, because you went through the fire. And this fire that is coming upon them right now will only serve to push them toward the goal. Lord, for any person in this room that your word has revealed a divided loyalty I pray that right now you would just show them what they truly trust in. And I pray that they would see the end of that is that they will be shipwrecked. It will bring forth death. And I pray that they would put their trust in Christ. And as we go through this trial, Lord, I pray that you would give us perspective, that we would take advantage of the privilege of prayer, that we might gain wisdom and strength in our time of need. You died and rose again to give it to us. And we access it now in Jesus' name. Amen. As you take communion today, and you take the bread and you dip it in the cup, 
you remember the fire of judgment that Jesus went to for you so that he could aid you in your time of trial, which will only refine you. Some of you are going through it right now. And there are men and women available to pray with you right now. Come and pray. Tap into the resource. That's how we do it. We come to him in prayer. We respond to the word of God. We look into the mirror and say, God, I see the imperfections. I'm coming to you. God, I need wisdom. I'm coming to you. You're his children. He says, come. Come to me right now. As we respond to him in worship, may we see his beauty and perfection. May you see today that he is all that you truly need. He is the greatest gift that you will ever have. Tap into it today as we worship and pray.